Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, you're listening to Chronically Chilled on 3CR. My name is Mario Pojega. Um, I just want to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation whose land we broadcast from. Um, so on today's show, I'll be speaking to Nicole Lee. So Nicole is a survivor advocate of family and domestic violence. Um, it's currently the 16 Days of Activism, um, which is a worldwide campaign that calls for the elimination of violence against women. It's also the week of International Day of People with Disability. Um, so I wanted to talk to Nicole about the overrepresentation of women with disabilities who are experiencing family and domestic violence um, and what we need to do to better respond and increase safety for women with disabilities. Um, Nicole, thank you so much for coming in and having a chat. Yeah, thanks for inviting me in to talk. Um, so we know that women with disabilities are far more likely to be victims of violence um, and assault. Um, what are the numbers? Okay, so... It- it's around uh, women with disabilities are twice as likely to be victims of, of some form of violence and we're more than a third likely to be victims of some form of intimate partner violence as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the other stats that, I've been, that I came across more recently is that um, 20% of women with disabilities report a history of unwanted sex compared with only 8.2% of women without disabilities. Yeah, right. So that statistic I find really alarming. Mm, absolutely. Um, So can you tell us about um, the work that you're doing in the family violence space um, and particularly around kind of improving responses to women um, with disabilities who are experiencing violence? Yeah, so um, I I guess I came into this space a little uh, while ago, back in 2015. I got invited to give evidence at the Royal Commission into Family Violence and then from that I was invited to be part of uh, the first Victim Survivors Advisory Council for the Victorian Government, which was one of the recommendations that came out of the Royal Commission. So for the last, uh, I guess, few years I've been brought in to... Um, help shape and design um, and, and oversee all of the recommendations that are coming out in Victoria. And, um, yeah, from but from somebody with a disability perspective who's been through the system and experienced the barriers and, and all the places where you get turned away or mm-hmm. um, to help, I, I guess, navigate how things are going to be designed and roll out so that maybe we can break down some of these barriers mm-hmm. uh, for women in the future going through the system, especially you know, for women with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that council had different people from all different elements of diversity, so I was there to represent the lived experience of, mm-hmm. of family violence and disability, but there was the called LGBTI, yes. Indigenous, um, older people, uh, children and young people as well, as well as people who'd experienced um, losing somebody. Yeah. And they're the kind of groups that fall through the cracks very easily in regards to kind of family violence and family violence services. Yeah. Um, What was it like for you to kind of come into that space and kind of what are some of the reflections that you've had? Um, Oh, I guess for me coming into that space, I'd never done anything like that before. Mm. So it was all really a lot of learning for myself and I got to sit alongside some some really, I guess, more prominent people that have been doing it for a long time, like Phil Cleary, who's been uh, working in this space for 32 Mm. years. So sitting alongside him... And, and hearing what he's got to say was was um, really influential for myself. 
And and I guess I slowly over this last three years, so when I first came into this space in 2016, I don't think I was as confident in what I was saying as I am now or yes. as outspoken as I am, but I've really, it, it's helped me find my voice. And I think that's something for, you know, people with disabilities. For some of us, we don't find our voice until mm. much later in life, which I, I think I talked about in the videos, yeah, yeah. is that, you know, I'm, I'm now 40, so it's taken me to my late 30s to realise that, I can go to university, um, that I have got good ideas and thoughts and, and I'm allowed to share them with people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that I wish I'd had have gotten that in my 20s, yeah. but, you know, I'm making up for lost time, you could say. Yeah, and I think there's also a kind of thought that, like, do people actually want to hear from me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or is it you're very self-conscious, am, am I saying yeah. the right things or, you know, is what I'm saying actually worthy of hearing? And well, is particularly it people with disabilities because yeah. it is so underrepresented. Yeah, and, yeah. and we've been silenced for so long in our lives or, you know, overlooked, um, undervalued or, you know, mm. pushed to the side or spoken down to that it's it's hard to, I guess, find that confidence when people haven't actually, you know, instilled in you that they actually trust the, what you've got to say yeah. or actually want to hear what you've got to say. And I think yeah. we've been ignored for too long. Um, that's absolutely right. So just in regards to um, women with disabilities who are experiencing um, family violence, what are some of the, I guess, unique um, forms of violence or kind of dynamics that might differ from, say, what we're used to hearing around family violence? Yeah, so we experience all the same forms of family mm. violence that other women experience, but a lot of the violence, for, especially for myself and I know for, for other people, is that it's very can be very targeted at a person's disability. Yeah. So um, I guess the major aspect for me was the fact that not only was the person abusing me my partner but he was also my carer yes. as well and that is the biggest barrier that I experienced you know in the relationship and then trying to identify and leave the relationship and 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 that would be the same I, I guess for other women with disabilities you know the system relies very heavily on informal supports to you know help you with your day-to-day um, routines or care or um, you know for me it was you know helping with showering looking after the kids and all that kind of stuff that um, I didn't think that there was any other options to be looked after or any other options for uh, to help me get by on a daily basis mm. um, and then that also then plays into the violence as well then I remember being spoken to and, and told that I was you know a burden mm. and we look at some of the language around disability and the way we speak about it and 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 reflect on it that we deport people with a disability from this country who are on a temporary visa because they'll be a burden on the Australian totally. system and even you know, children like yeah and children, children. young yeah. children as well what message does that send to us who are living in homes where somebody's angry at us that they have to care for for us or angry that you know that I have to look after you and do stuff for you all the time all of that plays into this murky kind of world of mm. not being able to understand that you know there's nothing that makes you deserving of being treated like that but yeah. um, I guess that slow breaking down of, of confidence yeah. and and agency as well is yeah. it plays a huge part in it yeah and you kind of just keep hearing this really simplistic thing of why don't women just leave yeah. um, but that whole carer thing and that carer dynamic and um, often carers are helping people to survive and get mm. around and that daily kind of functioning and stuff, um, it would make it really hard to live. Yeah, well, if, if you think that the only way you can actually disclose to somebody or or speak out about what's happening and, and to get out of the house to actually do that is the person who's perpetrating abuse, like mm. what chances do you have of, of, of even being able to tell someone when they're not around? I, I remember he went, 
everywhere with me to mm-hmm. maternal and child health nurse appointments. And that was one of the things that did come out of, you know, the Royal Commission is a greater screening at maternal and child health appointments or during, you know, maternity appointments at hospitals. But if you don't go anywhere on your own yes. because your carer goes everywhere with you, then you don't have much option for being able to tell someone. And the thing is, the other big thing is, and, and that's where it, I guess the violence is actually very visible as mm. well, is like he did go everywhere. He did come into all my appointments. And if I didn't have a disability, people probably would have asked questions or people would have been concerned. Geez, he never seems to leave her alone or yeah, right. he's not beside her. And I didn't need him to come everywhere with me. He just did. Yes. And no one questioned that there was red flags going on here. And I I use this analogy that is from Bojack Horseman um, around that when it comes to disability, everybody puts on the rose-coloured glasses and all of those red flags just look like flags. Yeah. Would you say there's also like a real bias around um, how people look at carers and privileging kind of their voices? Yeah, yeah. And that's, and and I guess that's a, a, for me, that's a narrative I know I need to be really delicate and careful Mm. with because... You know, not all carers are abusive, just like when we say, you know, men's violence against women, not all men are abusive. But, you know, the fact is that some carers are, just like some men are. And it's something that we do need to be mindful of is, you know, speaking to people, Mm. not to their carers or wondering why they actually don't have a voice. You know, what's stopping them from being allowed to speak out? Um, And also this really toxic language around um, what they call like the halo effect of carers is that mm. they're you know self-sacrificing they're such amazing wonderful people to take on such a great job and you know it might be all of those things but what does that again say to us mm. that it needs to take somebody amazing and special and you know um, you know all these things to want to be with me then you start it, it's you start feeling even more worthless and and less worthy than everybody else or less um, deserving of people to be around you and, and love you and care about you. Yeah, so, totally. yeah, that, that carer dynamic, you know, the, the narrative around, you know, carers, you know, is also very damaging to us mm. as well. And, and I know it's a topic that we need to tread lightly on as well. Yeah. And I know you talk about vulnerability, so challenging kind of some of that language around mm. vulnerability of women who are experiencing violence are often talked about Mm. and you can often hear language around vulnerability and this person's vulnerable and all that stuff. Um, People with disabilities are also seen as vulnerable. Um, So kind of combining both of those things, like, yeah, yeah, like I know that you challenge some of that. So can you talk about that a bit? Um, Well, I I think that we need to redefine or, or, you know, sort of shift our focus on what we think of as being vulnerable Mm. or, or who actually owns that vulnerability. Now, if... When it comes to you know women with disabilities or people with disabilities who are existing in abusive relationships, um, is that you know you shouldn't have to rely on the one abusing you f- to meet your care needs, and mm-hmm. and you know you're not necessarily choosing to be in that situation. Um, you know you've been put in that situation by the state, by the systems around you not supporting you better. Um, but you know this vulnerability aspect of it and I, I think I saw it in a newspaper article the mm. other week around you know uh, um, an ass- yeah, sexual assault of women with disabilities and talking you know that they were vulnerable now we don't own that vulnerability um, the person with the disability is not the one who's vulnerable if they don't have a choice in the situation that they're in or mm. the support that they that they're asking for but 
you know, the one who was actually vulnerable was the one who chose to abuse their position of power. They were vulnerable to their position, you know, to abusing someone yeah. um, and, and to abusing that privileged position that they've been put into. Yeah. So you shifting the vulnerability label from the person with the disability or from the victim and over to the person who's perpetrating. Mm-hmm. But the perpetrator was vulnerable to exerting their power and control and, and over another person. Mm, totally. Having kind of come into the community sector and the service sector, I guess, and kind of being an advocate for women with disabilities in that space, what are some of the gaps that you've, I guess, come across or kind of have noticed during your work? Bringing us in at the last point, I guess, is, is a really huge gap. Um, or whether or not, you know, where they've decided to design something, whether it be a new piece of legislation or um, a structure, is that they've got it all kind of mapped out, but then they've forgotten to map out diversity until they start to come and do consultations with people. Um, it's a huge, huge oversight on, on their behalf. Um, you know, some of the really big barriers and things, when I stop and really think about it, um, uh, a physical access to courts and things um, I've found to be mm-hmm. still an issue that, you know, people with disabilities, we still can't get on the witness stand, you know, because it's, you know, it's up a couple of, it's up a step or it's up a couple of steps or it's actually just too narrow completely. And, and that's something that I'd been asking for for a while is that if you have to address the court, you have to do it from the ground, completely open yeah. with nothing in front of you and it's a very vulnerable position mm-hmm. to be in. Um, but I guess stuff that I don't think has been fully fleshed out for me is is services understanding of what our agency is yes. and how people can be just so inherently stuck. Now, I was one of those women that, you know, I didn't get up one day and decide that that's it, I need to leave, that mm. the police had to step in and, and tell me that, you know, you're unable to protect yourself so we need to do it for you, um, is that... You know, people need to understand that, for, especially for people with a disability, mm. is that we can have had uh, violence normalised over the course of our lifetime. So one, not really being able to identify. Two, you know, being so incredibly scared of how you're going to survive without this person abusing you in your mm. life that you're so afraid to leave that you just don't. And people not understanding that that we're not staying because we're enjoying the abuse we're staying, because we don't know that there are any other options. Mm. And I'm not seeing any prevention campaigns that are targeted in this area or targeted to understand, you know, you know how and why we're so inherently stuck and more stuck than other women. Um, and, and I guess even for the services, and I've heard it said to me that, you know, I'm a feminist, I'm not going to tell a woman what to do. Mm. But the thing is, again, redefining your concept mm. of agency in that, well, when the police stepped in, they didn't take the decision away to leave from me. They took it away from him. And then slowly over the next couple of years, I was supported to regain and find my agency Mm. and and, and, um, rediscover my independent decision-making capacity. Mm. Um, That that stuff takes time. And I don't think we've really fleshed out all of that, not really in the context of, of disability, that's for sure. And kind of the more public awareness around it as well I think is really lacking. Yeah, totally. Um, and this, we know that the service system is so siloed. Yes. Um, and I think that this, the disability um, services are off even more kind of isolated from the rest of kind of the community service, including domestic violence services. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it just seems to me that it's really evident that there hasn't been much conversations between the two. No. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. 
well, all the work I do is really in the family violence sector mm. and it's really quite um, interesting, you know, when I start to move into more disability-based spaces that, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not as welcome there. Mm. I think I make people really uncomfortable at the level of violence that I do talk about. Um, but then in the family violence sector, people are really uncomfortable because I have a disability. So mm. I kind of feel a little awkward and uncomfortable in both sectors. But those two areas do not talk to each other. Yes. They There's not much in the way of crossover. The only organisation I know that is a disability-based organisation is Women with Disabilities Victoria mm. that does go across the two um, sectors and, and does advocate across the top two of them. Um, and I work quite closely and have done lots of stuff with them. Yeah. But when it comes to other disability services, it feels like it's all a responsibility of, of the family violence sector mm. and it's not really their um, area of expertise. Yeah. But you know, if we don't have that collaboration between the two, then we're not going to be able to bridge the gap of, of people being able to get out and be free and have the supports that they need to be able to escape. What do you think the discomfort's about? Uh, oh, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think, you know, we're starting to really push back on that disability inspiration, you know, kind of a model out there. And, and, and you know, ableism is one of those things that I guess we're all marinating in mm. daily mm -hmm. and have been for a very long time. And I think... You know, we just want to know about all the good stuff in your life. Right. And, and that's kind of the feeling I get from people is when you actually start talking about, you know, exploitation and rape and mm -hmm. abuse and, and all of those things and that a carer can, you know, that a carer, and he was a man with a disability as well that yeah. perpetrated all of this, is that it's just, you know, I get this feeling from people. It's like, okay, now just make me feel better about yes. it. Yeah, you know, make and, me feel happy, inspire me. And, and, and yeah. we're really pushing back on that kind of narrative. And I guess in the family violence sector because... You know, I think once we hear more stories and once there's more um, people speaking out in this space, then people will start to become less mm -hmm. uncomfortable. I think we just haven't heard it as yeah. well as the other problem is that we mm -hmm. haven't um, we haven't heard from people themselves. Um, we've read about you know stats and all that kind of stuff, but connecting mm -hmm. that to people is is a little bit more different. And when you've got someone in front of you who is the primary victim. I guess it takes a little while for that to become real for people, but yes. you know, when there's more people speaking and there's more people talking about their experience, you know, maybe everybody will be more comfortable with starting to include that and 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 I guess challenging that narrative. Um, you know, I guess you know, in Victoria we've challenged a lot of narratives around family violence mm. and um, with the reforms that we've been having, you know, that, are, that it can be anyone of any class, of any race of you mm. know, and, and gender as well and diverse background, that um, that violence just, it's one of those things that will cross over all demographics. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, bringing in more people rather than just, you know, sort of the same people that we kind of go to that we're sort of a little bit more comfortable with. I know. And, and, <laughs> and I, uh, in my experience, the service sector is so bad at um, consulting anyway, mm. but then people on the margins are even less likely to be consulted Yes. As well, which kind of has, has meant that there's been these really kind of services that actually aren't very flexible and aren't very, um, mm. what's the word, um, responsive to kind of difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think um, also around you know, what you were just saying, saying there is that you know, there's this big fear around not asking too much of victim survivors yes. and and we don't want to burden them and and is but then we don't want to yeah, yeah we don't want to burden them but then we don't want to be paternalistic either we need yeah. to give them space and agency and it's a bit of a weird kind of 
uh, uncomfortable space for people to navigate. It's like we don't want to ask too much of you, but we want you to come in. So, yeah. in and and it's funny, like I've I've seen with some people in their you know deepest attempt to not be paternalistic, they've gone full circle and become paternalistic. Yes, you know, let's we don't want to overburden you, so we've just taken away the process from you. Whereas and taken away the power from you. Yes, and yes. taken away the power <laughs> from you, and and haven't brought you in early enough or at the beginning. Yes. And you know, some of the best stuff I've gotten to do is to work alongside some design teams. From you know, let's define what the problem is to let's mm. actually work at how defining you know, what the solution might be. And yeah. that's been a beautiful recipe. And totally. burden us with the process because that's the key ingredient is the process Absolutely. to getting the outcome. Yes. And it's not on purpose by people. It, it's, I don't think so either. No. Yeah. But it's that, you know, fear that it will ask too much of people. But this has been a huge part of my recovery as well and mm. a huge part of me regaining that, that, that independence and that agency and my voice again. It's really interesting um, to you, listening to you talk about kind of that asking too much. I was listening to the ABC radio last week um, and Virginia Trioli had someone on from the Alfred Hospital um, doing training to the staff there about asking around family violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember their name, so I'm really sorry for that. Right. <laughs> but um, they were kind of saying, well, we getting um, staff to you know ask those questions around do you feel safe at home and things? Mm. And Virginia Trioli just went, oh, that's a really confronting question. But if you're experiencing violence, that, people know how to answer that question. Yeah. And it's often a big relief for someone to ask you that question. Yeah. And I'm even thinking, like, because I've done a lot of work with young people, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds would know how to answer that question. Mm. And it's a huge relief for someone to notice some of that stuff. Yeah, you know, it's, it's that noticing that somebody doesn't quite look okay or, mm. um, you know, questioning why does this person seem really depressed? And, and for me, my mental health suffered during that 10 years quite severely. Yeah. And, you know, we're just hanging out for somebody to ask us yes. the questions. We're the masters of dancing around and avoiding what it is that we're living with. But when somebody asks that direct question... That's that's a massive change, and I've heard this from other victim survivors. Whereas, you know, I just wish that somebody in that emergency department had have asked me how that happened, mm. because I probably would have told them. And you know, it was the same for myself. Um, but I, I guess with with disability is that you know instead of saying you know I you know do you feel safe at home. Mm. Um, you know, because that can mean a different thing for people with disability. I, I know back then I would have thought, well, am I a falls risk? No. <laughs> that really medical model of questioning, yes. you know, is like, oh, no, I'm not a falls risk, so I guess I'm safe at home on my own. Um, but more around, does anyone make you feel scared? And, you know, mm. but actually just asking the question, you know, what's going on for you at home? You know, why, you know what's happening for you? And, yeah, and, it, and it's not it's not a difficult question. It's, it's not, and people oh yeah. either ask you on, answer honestly or, or they won't. It's it's the you and know, if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. Yeah. Who cares? Like yeah, yeah. what's the worst that happens? <laughs> yeah, there's no violence happening, and you ask somebody a question. You know, do you feel yeah. safe at home or do you feel scared at home? They go, no, I'm fine. What are you talking about? Yeah. No one's harmed in that. Yeah. But if they, you know, you've opened up the door for somebody to be able to talk. Totally. Um, and in my experience, like um, police have been less than unhelpful a lot of the times when it comes to um, responding to family violence um, and to women who are experiencing violence. Um, what's the, been the experience of people with disabilities around that? Uh, well, I, I had a, you know, a really good response from police, but then I went directly to um, one of the sexual assault and mm. child abuse investigation teams, so one of the socket units where 
you, know, you do have police there that are far more trained, far more understanding of violence. So yes. um, they were actually quite fantastic. But, you know, um, you know, for other women with disabilities, I was at Box Hill have just opened up the – they've done work with SCOPE around having communication mm. boards for people, um, you know, who have uh, communication you – know, don't communicate in the traditional ways that other people do is that they're actually able to give evidence or able to tell what's happening to them mm. and that's that's like a first so you know if if you don't have the communication ability to you know speak in traditional ways that everybody's comfortable with then you know your experience with police is going to be really quite challenging and difficult mm. you know especially if if devices have been damaged or you know communication boards don't actually have the symbols to say what's happening to yeah, you totally. um, I, I would like to hope that Things have changed since the Royal Commission in Victoria. Um, but, you know, for so long we've been ignored or, you know, um, not listened to when trying to tell someone what's happening or mm. what they, you know, what's going on at home. Um, you know, but uh, I know that I know a few stories, but they're not mine to tell, so I can't no, share totally. them with you. No, that's fine. I'm not asking for that. Um, <laughs> so where does the NDIS fit in all this? Oh man, the NDIS boy! Hey, how long is a piece of string? <laughs> <laughs> um, it has the ability. The NDIS really does have the ability. It's the structure there that can give people freedom, but unfortunately, you know, every year it's gotten more and more complex and more and more difficult. And I know full well that if I was on, if I was still with my partner when the NDIS rolled out, I would have been just as stuck as I was before because he mm. would have been seen as the carer. He would have taken control of it all, and I'd be in just as a disempowered position as I am right now and, and the staff wouldn't have still been trained yeah the staff yeah. still wouldn't have been trained and yeah. you know I had support workers that were coming into my home that were have that could see what you know have an idea and understanding of what was mm. going on and were feeling uncomfortable but never said anything mm. and they just kind of turned a blind eye um, but you know he still would have been able to control if and when I had support workers coming into the home and unfortunately I don't think there's enough um, systems in place to in a planning meeting, you know, speak with the person with a disability, you know, on their own, you know, mm. asking someone, you know, just need you to step out, we're just going to have a bit of a conversation, do that risk assessment um, and then ask the person, you know, in an ideal world, if you could have anything you wanted or do anything you wanted, what would that be? What would life look like for mm. you? And whether or not that, and see whether that matches up to what's actually being asked for for this person's yes. plan. And like there's so much reliance on informal supports especially under the NDIS and you think of the huge underspend and it's just heartbreaking mm. because for me being able to leave meant that you know I had to push back on people and say you know I, I need to go and have the intervention order lifted because I physically cannot survive at home and I need mm. somebody to help me and that pushed child protection to go and ask some more questions that I've got this woman with a disability this is what she's just said to me what do I do and people being you know well, we've got the Disability Family Violence Crisis Initiative Fund in Victoria. Mm. What does she need right now? That's $9,000 over the course of 12 weeks. Um, and that was the difference between um, not going back to him mm. was that I was able to, they were able to put systems and services in place to take away that need and reliance on, on, on support. And then I was able to work out, well, okay, I don't need him anymore. Do I actually even want him? Mm. And And no, I didn't. But... You need supports. You need the system there to be able to remove that um, reliance on the person abusing you day to day to be able to work out the difference between need and want. Mm. And 
and that's where the NDIS has the power to do that. Yeah. Um, it's it's the structure that's there waiting that can create so much freedom, yeah. so much autonomy for people that's so, um, yeah, f- failing in my opinion in Sorry. that regard. Yeah. Um, we'll leave the NDIS there because <laughs> <laughs> we could go forever. Yes. Um, I, I feel like there are so many gaps, but I feel like um, the Orange Door offers a real opportunity. Um, and from what I'm hearing, there's kind of mixed reviews around how that's going and how yeah. that's being implemented and stuff. But I know that you're kind of been, uh, I guess, advising or consulting around the Orange yeah. Door. Um, how, you think, how do you think that's going? And can you maybe explain a little bit about what that actually is about? Okay, so the Orange Door was, again, one of the recommendations to open up support and safety hubs as like a one-stop, like entry point Mm. into the family violence, um, you know, support system. Mm. Um, Whereas, you know, the system before, I remember having to call multiple different places and services and, and, sorry, and and being, I guess, told that we're not a disability-based service or we can't help you with that. You're going to have to call this number over here or you're yeah. going to have to go to that one. And I had I remember calling so many different places and so many different people mm. to try and find support. And in the end, I, I you know, really didn't. And, and I got shunted around all over the place. Whereas the orange door is instead of, you know, the service is all in the middle here and the person hunting around the outside trying to find the right place is the person is at the middle. Yeah. It's one phone number to call. There's one place to go to and you go there. And all those services are hunting around the outside of you. And so they do the they do a really thorough risk assessment. Mm. Um, it's in a very safe and secure um, location to the point where um, we don't advertise. Well, they don't advertise where the locations are in each area until somebody actually needs to go there to try mm. and keep that um you know uh location you know, i guess secret but not too secret yeah. um and then you know and then they'll do a full assessment of someone and work out what are all this person's need and then they'll make all the referrals to you know the places that you need you know do you need disability services do we need to be looking at um you know maybe doing an ndis review and and who do we get involved or who do we get in contact with yes. and you know what service would be the best fit mm. for this person versus making you call all these people mm. in the midst of a crisis um, that they surround you with services, and that's the change I guess the Orange Door is is hoping to make. And and unfortunately, uh, you're asking about how are they rolling out. Um, I guess the unfortunate thing is, is there are only five of them at the moment yes. across the whole of Victoria. Mm. Um, but there's more rolling out. There's meant to be uh, in the plan 17 across the whole of Victoria, so mm. one in each DHHS zone. So mm. each hub will have all the existing family violence services from that area incorporated into the hub and those services are still accessible outside of the orange door as well so um so until we have that blanket coverage across victoria is that um i guess we're going to run into problems so unless you're in one of the locations for the hub you can't apparently at the moment go there um, which is really really unfortunate so Mm. it means then you're back to the way the system was before um some of the other i guess bits and pieces around and it was a bit worrying to start with that the perpetrators weren't meant to be seen or serviced through the orange door and now they're kind of co-located. Mm. Um, but I guess in the attempt to keep them as central and close to that risk assessment process as possible, mm. it kind of does make sense. But there hasn't been any incidents so far. And when there has been, they've enacted their safety plan and you know, and it's worked, mm-hmm. which is really, really hopeful. Okay. Um, yeah, and I guess one of the other things that hasn't quite rolled out yet, I'd love to see... 
um, remote witness facilities in those locations mm-hmm. for you know remote witnessing into you know our, our courts as well. Totally, that's a great that that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing that the Royal Commission called for, I guess, was cultural change and kind of um, looking at societal mm. um, ideas around gender and. In the preparation for this, we were texting and you sent me a message about um, it's currently the 16 days of activism. So it's also the day of um, International Day for People with Disabilities. Um, And I just went, oh, gosh, it's been one of my things I've been thinking about is we never join forces. No. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's, it's something that's frustrated me every year that I've been working in this space is that we've got the 16 days of activism. You know, we're doing all, you know, this campaigning around, you know, over those 16 days to start um, looking at biases and, and, and um, looking at gender equality and looking at the bystander effect. Yet we've also got the day, International Day of People with a Disability on the 3rd of December. And with, there's no events. There's no, there's, there's nothing, nothing happens. Well, there's events, but they're in the disability sector. There's not really any events happening in the family violence sector mm. around disability on that day. And it's just really, I, I find it bizarre that those two um, that it's not happening and frustrating that, you know, how do, you know, how do I expect that, you know, other women with disabilities to come into this space if we're not linking the two, mm. you know, I'm a woman first, but then, you know, the element of disability has created barriers and, 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 and it is a slightly different experience and that, you know, and it is valid and it is mm. important and people do want to know about it and we need people to know more about it. But unless we can link up these two, then... You know, it's still kind of that murky territory. Do we belong in this area? Do we belong in this sector? You know, until these sorts of things are happening. And that would be a really symbolic, you know, very you know symbolic yeah. um, moment that I'm surprised that nobody has really sort yeah. of jumped on or or, or utilised, so to speak. Probably a better way than saying jumped on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and not just, not just like around disability, but, you know, LGBTIQ mm. um, days or, you know, weeks where of awareness where we can all get together and, you know, make it that, you know, everyone talks about intersectionality and I think it's such a mm. buzzword. But, yes. you know, are we actually doing that very well or not? And that's a question that I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, you, know? yeah well, you can't just sprinkle in words like, you know, diversity and yeah, intersection- right. intersectionality and gender equality and, you know, um, and, the, and the patriarchy uh, and, and think that, you know, you being inclusive yeah. without actually understanding what all those things mean and how mm. they overlap and, and how that overlapping and overlaying of somebody's identity can, you know, push them further to the side and, and mm. you know, to the margins. Um, women with Disabilities Victoria, they recently have done a project called Do Your Thing, which you were a part of. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what that was and what your involvement was? Okay, so the the Do Your Thing project was um, the creating of of videos of um, women with disabilities who, uh, you know, do different sort of activism or or advocacy work. And I guess putting out some, um, you know, positive role models for younger women with disabilities that are starting to come into this space that they can, you know, uh, I, not so much look up to, but, you know, seeing, you know, other people and, and seeing a different aspect of disability rather than just that, um, you know, women with disabilities being seen as, um, you know, passive and needing mm. care, you know, needing to be cared for. And, you know, and then the other toxic um, stereotype of, of disability is like if you are outspoken or you do stand up, for, you know, speak up for yourself, is that then you're seen as being stubborn, 
you know, mm. strong-willed, stubborn and refusing of help. And, you know, we're none of these things, yet we can be all of those things in a combination of them. Um, and the beautiful thing about being included in those videos was that, you know, there's such a diverse array of the people that have been included, like, you know, Carly Findlay mm. and... Um, and, and Larissa, and so there's artists, there's musicians, there's actors, there's, you know, appearance diversity activists and writers and, and, and myself as well, you know, all thrown in there with the mix. Mm. Um, just challenging those stereotypes, putting another narrative out there that hasn't, you know, been as prominent in the past and, you know, showing all the different ways and the different diverse ways in which disability and our representation um, changes across different people as well, that we're not all the same either, mm. you know, that we all do things differently and we all have different challenges and different barriers and different adversity as well. Yeah. Um, you can find all the videos by visiting um, the Women with Disabilities website and I think it's all over their social media pages as yeah, well. So check it out. Um, it's really fantastic. Um, just finally, how can people find you or connect with you? Um, well, they can find me, I guess, on Twitter. I'm underscore nic dot underscore lee on Twitter. Um, you know, on Facebook, just under Nicole Lee, and on mm -hmm. Instagram, um, under simply Nick. And I share lots of photos of my cats and dogs and my grandson on there. I love Instagram <laughs> because it's just, it's just you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. Totally. All right, Nicole. Thank you so much for coming on and um, having a chat. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to anti-violence campaigner Nicole Lee. Um, if you've been listening to this and would like further support, you can call 1-800-RESPECT, um, which offers free 24-hour support for people impacted by family violence, abuse and sexual assault. You can also call Lifeline on 131114, so 131114. Um, as usual, you can check out all of the episodes of Chronically Chilled via the 3CR website or also on iTunes. Um, I just want to thank again um, Nicole for coming on and also thank you for listening.